Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Kia ora, everyone. Um, welcome to a special Matariki edition of mm. The Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey with co-host... Or, or as Chris Luxon would say, the Pleiades. The Pleiades. <laughs> oh, boy. Chris, yeah. you keep stumbling into these things. Well, I don't think so, actually, Bernard, but we'll, we'll go there anyway. Hello, it's me too. And Yes, Peter Bale. I did go down the other night. The We should do this, actually, Bernard, since you live quite near me. We should walk down to the Harbour Bridge where... The Ngāti Whātua uh, Oraka have paid or organised for the bridge with Vector to be rather beautiful, turned into a rather beautiful, every hour on the half hour, there's a really beautiful Matariki kind of light display over the harbour bridge. I went down the other night on the launch and I expected there to be hundreds of people there and there was basically me and you know who, uh, ah. but it was very beautiful. So I think we should go down and have a look sometime. Yeah, the Harbour Bridge is um, is is one of those things, a bit like Sky Tower, which sort of looks so much better lit up than it does just in in raw life. Well, I think we know that I have an objection to the Sky Tower because of the um, casino underneath. I I, I, I come mm. over all sort of Calvinist about that. I don't know quite whether that's fair, but I I um, you know quite like the you know the lighting and the way they've organised it and the fact that you can bungee bungee jump off it or if you see me bungee jump off it then it's probably my last bungee jump although a 90 year old friend of mine who unfortunately is now no longer with us jumped off the harbour bridge on a bungee uh for her 90th birthday and and amazingly it didn't just leave her feet in the in the <laughs> no. thing and with you know she she survived and was um, covered good. quite extensively in the Herald, actually. Anyway, oh, how are you? Very good, thank you very much. It has been a heck of a week, lots of news, and we weren't really expecting it because Parliament's not sitting and the Prime Minister was away overseas. So we were thinking, oh, it'll be a relatively quiet week. But we've had some big things happen. In particular, uh, Chris Hipkins um, sent a, a little note off from Stockholm to New Zealand as the leader of the Labour Party, saying that uh, while he was Prime Minister, he would not do a wealth tax or a capital gains tax. I know. And yeah, you know, can I just say, but you say it's quite, you know, it's been a busy week, but you have done probably the one of the most extraordinary pieces of journalism that I've seen in New Zealand since I've come back. Possibly, mm. you know, your piece essentially saying Labour has stuffed the equity, you know, the genie has, 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 Accepted that the Gini coefficient, the the equality of New Zealand, mm. will be out of whack for five to fifteen years. Mm. It was a really extraordinary piece. I mean, Patrick Smelly, our, our friend, got you know fairly close to it, did, did a similar thing. But you, mm. you mean you did it at some length? I haven't seen that level of analysis, and I thought it was really uh, telling that um, our friends at the spinoff put mm. your Kaka blog entry about it up. And I just I haven't seen this really. Done properly on the other on on the rest of media. Maybe I'm just am I in in a in a bubble here because I think this really goes to what you're trying to do, Bernard. You you did the most important political story of the last three to six months, if not the last th certainly since Jacinda left. Mm. Yeah, I've been surprised by the reaction. 
And regular uh, readers and subscribers to the Kaka will recognise a lot of the things I was saying. It just happened that the announcement this week was quite strong and it was a big piece of news in that space. And uh, because this is my sort of specialty, I wanted to mark this milestone with a deeper dive. And mm. I've been really surprised by the reaction. So uh, we put it out immediately to everyone via the Kaka. And uh, the number of comments we've had, uh, which was currently the record number of comments we've ever had on a on a news article, mm-hmm. it is broken our records for the most read article, and it has introduced the kaka to a whole new range of um, people who have subscribed in various forms. And also, um, I've been on Radio New Zealand talking about it, and it has, um, yeah, it seems to have struck a nerve, which is, that's part of my job, really. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get to the, I mean, we, we talk, we, just to give everybody, we haven't really done our, our schedule, because we're going to talk to Robert Patman shortly, as usual, about Ukraine. Robert will be, you know, wearing his um, jandals, because I'm sure he's on the beach in Dunedin drinking the gin we sent him, <laughs> um, and relaxing on a Friday. But we're also going to talk to my friend uh, Corinne in Sydney mm. about uh, solutions journalism at the end of this. But Bernard, that, uh, am, am I right in thinking that really it was you and, and Patrick alone who called that out in quite the firm way that you did? Yeah, you, to do that, you need to have been around for a while and to understand when what seems like a simple thing needs to be elevated and focused on with a big lens. So this is part of the game, really. And one of the things I think we're missing in some parts of the media, and I've noticed it lately on television and mm-hmm. in some of the newspapers, is that ability of an editor to sit yeah. back and see all the noise in front of them, see the, all the the rushing around of their reporters and and all of the questions that are being asked and the noise and the distractions, sit back and then go, that is the story, that's why it's important, and we need to bring that to the top. Yeah, to, new, to, oh, to news edit. Jesus yeah, Christ, exactly. it, you'll, be, you'll be suggesting stories get edited next. <laughs> that yeah, we don't and, just write off the top of our heads. Yeah, because we've got a lot of... Very hardworking, talented journalists working in all sorts of places, but often they've only been there for three or four years. Mm. And they lack sometimes the confidence to be able to say, actually, that thing you put in the last paragraph, actually, that is the news today. Yeah, please stop, sit back, go and write that, rewrite that in 800 words. We do not need to have the clickbait headline, first of all. Although I would have thought, actually, that your story, um, although it was very long, could have been broken up in such a way because essentially you're calling out the prime minister mm. and saying he's uh, bottled it. And I thought also the other, just to ask, ask you to go on two points. One, he's bottled it. Two, the Grant Robertson uh, mm. line that you had in there that he was a team player, but he'd clearly been spending months on it. And it was a very creative bit of work because, you know, as you mm. know, Bernard, I'm slightly skeptical about increased taxes, and I'm slightly sceptical about the government's ability to spend these things in effective ways. But you had Grant Robertson and the other guy. um, David Parker. David Parker. You know, you had your best talented people there shitting on their own people in a way, or on their best idea. Yeah. If you were being um, mean about it, um, you would say that Chris Hipkins just threw his own finance minister under the bus by allowing him to go forward during the budget process with Mm. the idea that it could actually happen. And as soon as Hipkins did that, he knew that 
it would become public eventually because mm. the Treasury uh, has a practice now of releasing all of its advice to the government during the budget process two or three months after the budget. So that means if you've considered something and decided not to do it, you know, in, in normal practice, you can sort of get away with no one knowing about it. But that's not the case with the budget process because Treasury preemptively releases these documents. So Chris Hipkins knew, yeah, which is which is great. I mean, it's 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 a really good piece of transparency. It is. But the thing is, Chris Hipkins knows that, and he knows that once it was being considered formally by Treasury, everyone would know about it a few months after the budget. And for him to allow that to go that far, and then to kill it at the last minute, mm. was to effectively allow Grant Robertson to put that idea out there in public, to expose his true um, desires, and then to l cut him off at the knees. And this is Grant Robertson who could and should have been the leader and who stepped aside so that Chris mm. Hipkins could step forward. We've also got uh, Chris Hipkins uh, effectively sacking Michael Wood after Michael Wood also agreed to step aside to let Chris Hipkins mm. um, be the Prime Minister. My understanding is that Chris Hipkins has not discussed this at length with members of the caucus and that within the party, there is outrage about um, how yet again uh, a prime minister has effectively said, yeah. we can't even talk about a wealth tax. No, because it just seems so creative. But it just, do you want to just, if anybody who hasn't read your, I think, probably 1,500, 1,600 word piece, the thing about it, it even I read it and I thought, actually, this is a, this is a remarkably low impact way for the general public or for growth. In fact, it promotes growth because I think one of the points that you made very effectively in that in that piece was that if housing is the only thing that you can invest in with, you know, no mm. tax upside, then why would you buy shares or why would you invest? You know, why would you go yeah. and do VC VC stuff? And it's the reason why New Zealand's investment rate both public and private, is so low compared to, mm. compared to the rest of the world. We've now had 30 years of this. And also, I think New Zealanders need to know that we are exceptional. We like to think that you know we have a, a fairly conventional economy that runs like everything else, but actually, we are really different in that we're the only place in the developed world that has no capital gains tax beyond the family home. We're one of the very few places in the world where you don't get a tax break for putting money into a pension scheme. So in the rest of the world, you can put aside a chunk of your salary or income into a, a preferred uh, investment vehicle. So we're talking here um, in the United States, what do they call them? IRAs 401ks. or 401ks. Yep. In the UK, they ISAs in the UK, or used to be ISAs, yeah. Yeah, and we have KiwiSaver funds here, but they don't have any tax preference. Oh, can I... Can I invest in housing through KiwiSaver? That's a bloody good idea. Oh, I know. <laughs> There's been a few people tried to set up KiwiSaver funds like that. Luckily, um, they're not going to be one of the default funds because it's so blatantly um, attempted to use Outrageous. A, a, yeah. But, <laughs> Double I mean, dipping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there are some uh, listed companies, um, in particular the uh, retirement companies, which effectively use the tax break on land values to take advantage of it and bolstering their values on the stock market. So this is um, mm. uh, this is this is something that's that skews our entire economy. Bernard, just just tell everybody what the what the proposal was. So the government looked at the prospect of 
are imposing a 1.5% tax on the net wealth for individuals of above $5 million and for couples above $10 million. So let's say you own five houses and you've got $2 million of debt and the houses in total are worth $8 million. So imagine you're a, let's call him, shall we call him Mr. Luxon? Mr. <laughs> yeah, five well, houses, $2 million yeah. in debt. Yeah, carry on. And so you've got, you know, the houses worth, let's say, $8 million. You've got $2 million of debt. So you've got net wealth of $6 million. And everything above $5 million, so that's so, so that's um, uh, $1 million in the case of, let's say it was Christopher Luxon, uh, he's taxed at 1.5% on that net wealth above the $5 million. And, and the whole point also excludes your family house, right? Yeah. And um, apparently one of the concerns that Chris Hipkins has w- had would be that family farms, which are not deemed to be the family home, but obviously a land which is owned by a family mm-hmm. and they live on it, many of those farms would um, uh, be... Would stop voting Labour. Yeah, Jesus, that would that would <laughs> make a huge difference to Labour, wouldn't it? And yeah. everyone forget, everyone thinks of the dairy farmers in particular, they're the ones with the land that's worth something. There's less than 10,000 of them. And actually, when you consider, you're right, they almost always vote a national or act. Um, you're not losing that many. Mm. So I, I think it was, a, I'm not so sure it was a mistake. Uh, he certainly felt that um, with Labour behind in the polls, because we've had two polls this week, uh, the poll from uh, Curia, which used to be the National Party's uh, mm-hmm. polling firm, and also the poll from... Uh, the Stephen Mills um, a polling operation, which polls for the Labour Party. Both of those showed Labour dropping into the very low 30s. In fact, the Mills poll showed uh, a drop to a re- the lowest in four years and um, showed that the gap between the centre-right block and the centre-left block was now approaching five percentage points, and that's up from around four percentage points yeah, interesting, Bernard. We've got we've got Robert there, but may I may I Robert? Would you would you mind if I if we just flick a couple of audience questions to Bernard about? Because I don't know whether you saw, but Bernard wrote an absolutely superb piece yesterday, basically shitting on Chris Hipkins from a great height, sausage sausage rolls. I didn't and all. use that word, but anyway, yep. <laughs> um, no, no, I just did. So, do, do you mind? Do you mind if we just do a couple of questions? Because I, I think I think it's no, a, no, a really significant moment, and I, and I, but genuinely, Vernon, I haven't seen it from other than you and Patrick. I haven't seen. Mm. Um, journalists in New Zealand really tackle it, but maybe I just haven't been reading enough. Although, as you know, I do it from um, waking to breakfast time. Yeah, we we don't we don't tend to have that sort of independent editorial journalism that you have in some of the big papers overseas, where you have yeah. some sort of um, columnist who isn't you know someone who is the head of the Sheep Farmers Association or the head of the Electricity Association. Yeah, I thought your point that both news news organisations derive a huge amount of their yeah. revenue from their various real estate things was a tad worrying. Troy Baisden asks, what stops minor parties from the left demanding a PM who is serious about tax reform, climate change, if they hold the balance of power after the election? Well, the problem there is that, let's say the Greens, who you could argue are in favour, well, they are in favour of a wealth tax and much more um, active um, emissions reductions. Um, they can say, hey, we've got this um, chunk of 15 MPs 
and uh, we want you to agree to do these things. Um, the trouble is, Labor knows that the Greens will never, 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 never put a national government in power mm. by doing some sort of supply and confidence deal with with national. Um, and that's it's partly tribal, I think. Uh, I think there's a there is a bit of a culture war that goes on between uh, the Greens and the um, centre right, conservative, more provincial end of politics. And of course, the act end of politics in New Zealand. So you could argue, and I have, and it makes me very unpopular with my Green friends, that if the Greens were absolutely ruthless about actually making a difference on uh, climate, on poverty, on housing, they would swallow their uh, discomfort about doing a deal that would put national power and at least threaten to put national in power so that mm. Labour has to take them seriously. Because at the moment, yeah, right. yeah. Labour can literally say, we're going to call your bluff. We know you're never going to go with national. Mm. Sure, you could sit on the crossbenches, give us a supply and confidence and not have any ministers. That's still not putting national in power. And so we're going to ignore you. More likely, it's, um, you know, we'll give you some minor ministries and we'll say we might do some things, but push comes to shove, we won't do it. And that's been the case, um, uh, and certainly in the last three years. Okay, but Bernard, one one last question before we go to Robert, and, and you must mm. give a shorter answer than you just did. <laughs> is this, this is Josh Hayes asking? Is this a major strategic blunder by Hipkins? It seems he'll struggle to get a coalition together without some movement in the space, one way or another. I think it will be a problem if members of the Labour Party revolt and if his caucus revolts. But I don't think they will, because they're even more scared of National getting into power than uh, their grumpiness with Chris Hipkins. And I think Hipkins, sadly, um, through his um, long experience and lots of detail, no doubt, from Stephen Mills through focus groups and um, targeted questions and polling, knows that, remember, more than 60% of New Zealanders own their own home. Mm, exactly. More than 70% of the people who actually vote own their own home. And that means a significant chunk of those people, um, more like 50%, believe that they th there's no other way to exist in New Zealand unless you own your own residential land. Yeah. No, absolutely. I've been thinking about it too. And, and you described this. You said basically anyone young should go to Australia. Um, me being old, I just thought maybe I need to go and uh, find, go and buy another house. Now, um, may I may I pause you there for a moment, Bernard, and bring in Robert because um, apart from the fact, what Robert's got, what nineteen houses was it? We discussed yeah. at one point in Dunedin. <laughs> no, no. no, it's a it's a very interesting point though because uh, I was a bit surprised that Hipkins completely ruled out a capital gains tax mm. and also a wealth tax because we're the only country in the OECD which doesn't have a capital gains mm. tax. And I thought it might have been a, cl a clever political move on his part, citing international experience, to say that the only way we're realistically going to get a greater um, ownership, private property ownership in this country, because there's a certain group that seems to be permanently excluded, uh, is to have a capital gains tax. There is no mm. inconsistency between a capital gains tax and private ownership of property. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that at the moment, every time a new, there's a new build, it's often the existing ho uh, mm -hmm. house owners who buy it. Of course it is. It's because we're the only ones who can afford it. Right. Now, Robert, what I found there was, was absolutely sensational that you managed to leverage your 
international affairs experience into a talk about the OECD so that you can, in fact, knowledgeably comment on um, the New Zealand housing market with an international perspective. Well, the two things are linked. Yeah. But it, it shows the lack of international perspective on the part of national and labour. And and this week, we've seen a very direct example of this where an international agreement, which normally you think mm. is independent from local economic policy, is now tied into our economic and our climate policy. The agreement um, signed this week in Brussels uh, between New Zealand and the European Union very specifically says mm. we must meet our Paris uh, Climate Accord mm -hmm. agreements or the European Union can take us to some sort of arbitration process yep. and or, or add tariffs to what we're sending. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And and so now, because we have signed this agreement, and I've seen no suggestion from the opposition that, that they would somehow pull out of the FTA, we have now signed up our in a very direct way, in a very economic way, our climate policy in particular, but also some of our labour policies and our you know, water cleanliness and also our uh, potential uh, problems with exploiting uh, temporary workers, where the European Union, and this is the most specific they've ever been with mm. one of their free trade agreements, Robert might be able to um, correct me on that, but... Robert's point is excellent, and I think a lot of people overseas would be surprised and pretty disappointed to know that we've created this tax system, which widens inequality, and from a mm. you know well-being point of view, means that uh, we're pretty ugly to to deal with. Now we're not putting people in prisons. You know, we're not. Um, Jesus, Bernard, this is a this is a fucking leap you're going on this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, the EU isn't going to stop trading. I mean, with you us. have you have talked several times in the past about the environmental aspect and the mm. fact that our trade and I and I found that a very powerful argument. Mm. Shall we go to the bang bangs and the diplomacy with Robert though? Now, do you think? Yes. Since he's sitting there with his bottle of um, Soda Stream gin and. <laughs> You know. Botany beige, in. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> good, good, good. Smuggled into my water bottle. Hey, Robert. So, so very interesting uh, Vilnius NATO summit this week. Um, I, I wrote a little bit in, in spinoff about it that mm. I thought some of that language was quite. Uh, it, it at least it suggested to me that we're at the peak of Western support for Ukraine. And then I was thinking today about the speed with which we're going to get to the U.S. election, and I wonder whether. This isn't. You would agree that this is, in fact, the peak of U.S. of uh, international support for Ukraine. Yes, although I think the Ukrainian leader, Mr. Zelensky, uh, had a bit of a roller coaster experience mm. with the NATO summit. He obviously ex expressed some frustration, but in retrospect, I think Zelensky is a very calculating politician, and I think he was determined to extract uh, as much as he could from the NATO summit. And one way was to have a minor tantrum. I think it was Henry Kissinger once said that uh, all good politicians are capable of having controlled tantrums. And uh, I was just thinking that, you know, he wrote on Twitter, which, of course, he's quite a master at, mm. he, 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 he said on Twitter that it was absurd that NATO would not create a clear pathway for Ukraine. But I think that he was mollified, and that was probably the whole intention. Mm. He's got quite explicit security guarantees now from the G7. Uh, mm. And also, uh, Joe Biden was asked in a, uh, a stand-up with uh, uh, Mr. Slensky, uh when the war's over, how 
how quickly would it happen? And he said, oh, about an hour and 20 minutes, which was, I think, mm. uh, a yeah. pretty sharp way of saying it's going to be as the United States, once this war is over, is going to really throw its weight behind Ukraine joining. Yeah, but of course it might not be Biden carrying it out. Uh, I just you 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 mentioned that that was security guarantees from G seven. Now yeah. interesting that it came from G seven when it was a NATO meeting. Is that yeah. because they used G seven effectively to paper over some of the disputes within NATO about this? Well, NATO is a consensus orientated organization, and of course Mr. Urban is a great fan of Mr. Putin, <laughs> yeah. and in fact has is uh, very reluctant to do anything against Mr. Putin. And um, might you know might one might almost describe him as a Putin asset. So hmm. uh, it, it's going to be very difficult to get Mr. Urban to sign up to anything that smacks of full-hearted support of Ukraine. And he's grudgingly gone along with a lot of things. But it, it's interesting, uh, and that may explain it: the it, the inability of NATO to get a complete consensus. Uh, on on the Ukraine situation, but did did it, did it also appear to you, Robert, that there is tremendous pressure to make? And we saw this with the with the uh, cluster bombs and so on, which have apparently started arriving in Kiev today. Mm. Uh, there is a sense that they that even if we fight, you know, I was thinking a lot the last few days about this idea of fighting to the last Ukrainian. The rest of the world needs to see Ukraine make progress. No. Yes, but I think some of the expectations are unrealistic. Some people thought that the counteroffensive was going to be a rerun of the dramatic progress that the Ukrainians made in the last quarter of last year, mm -hmm. whereas, in fact, the Russians have been dug in and they've done extensive fortification preparing for precisely the moment when the Ukrainians are in a position to try to retake what is theirs about 20% of their land space currently occupied by the Russians. I, I think it's going reasonably well because they haven't committed the bulk of their force mm. and they are systematically softening up the Russian positions. And there are signs which are mounting that not is all is well in the Russian military. No, well, someone, someone. Oh, yeah. uh, let me just check. Oh, David Morag, who's always, always on and, and is a terrific chap, I'm sure, Asked how many how many Russian uh, generals are missing, and I, I don't want to preempt my skateboarding dog, but I was rather taken with the with the Russian line from I think from Dmitry Peskov about uh, where uh, General Armageddon Surovkin Surovkin was gone, and it was that he's resting, which made him sound like the Norwegian <laughs> made him sound like the Norwegian Norwegian blue from Monty Python, you know, involuntary resting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hopefully in peace. I think you've pinpointed a, a crucial point, though, Peter. Uh, Putin's in a real dilemma now. He desperately needs the most effective generals in the field in Ukraine to be successful. But I think he's also sufficiently weakened to be really worried about this. And that is to say, he wants to monopolize power and stay in the Kremlin. And I think he's worried that um, a, a military, an effective military leader may see that as a mandate to actually turn against Putin. Mm. Uh, Stalin had similar fears, by the way, in 1945 after uh, General Zhukov had uh, successfully mm. led uh, the counteroffensive through Eastern Europe. And, uh, of course, he was immediately removed from the scene. <laughs> Uh, I think he physically survived, but Stalin got very worried. I mean, this is the thing that many people underestimate in democracies, how insecure paramount leaders are, 
in authoritarian regimes. Mm. I was going to say we can we can I'm, I'm sure you use if you don't use it I'll bring a I'll bring a um, DVD of it down and we can we can watch uh, sometime if I ever come to Dunedin again um, the death of Stalin the Armando Iannucci yes, very um, interesting which, which you know is humor but it is you know shows exactly that kind of desperate uh, the desperation that goes on about what is happening with the leader. Mm. But I think John Sweeney, the journalist, put it very well mm. on this point. He said that Mr. Putin now is in a bind. He needs the most effective generals, as we said before, in the field, but he's absolutely politically worried about that very prospect. So he does seem to be in a great deal of difficulty. And interestingly, in the last week, uh, we saw a leading general, uh, General Popov, uh, actually have the temerity to suggest the Russian army should rotate their troops. Mm. <laughs> and then he was popped off. Yeah, he was put straight to the Ukrainian front for that. So um, <laughs> he clearly there's a great deal of insecurity in the Kremlin at the moment. And I think Prigozhin, as we in a previous discussion, we mentioned this, is not so much the threat now from Prigozhin, but from other people who've been long dissatisfied with Mr. Putin's leadership, who may now feel uh, that Putin is vulnerable. Speaking of paramount leaders... China's Xi Jinping is now under an awful lot of pressure uh, economically. Um, the economy there is actually slipping back into deflation. Mm. Some more uh, bad numbers today on exports, but still pretty grumpy with anyone who um, pushes back at China. Chris Hipkins made some quite strong comments in his speech in NATO, and China has bounced back and actually said some grumpy things about New Zealand. Don't dance with the devil, says the Chinese ambassador to New yeah. Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't actually hear that comment, so thank you for that. But I, I, I thought when Hitkins delivered his speech, I read the text carefully in when he was in uh, uh, Vilnius, and uh, I, I thought uh, it was a good speech, and uh, it was quite hard hitting. It didn't mm. pull any punches. You know, our our, our friend um, in inverted commas, uh, Anne Marie Brady, thought he was very brave, as the yeah, Chinese ambassador I, then proved. Yeah, well, but I mean, it was interesting when Hipkins gave his foreign policy speech, which we previously discussed. He did actually allude to addressing down the yeah. Nanai Mahuta, and he said, We don't deny that, which is clearly saying that we have very profound differences with China. He described it as a very complex relationship. And I think it's quite clear. And I think this point needs to be registered in Australia, the United States, and the UK, who constantly depict. New Zealand is soft touch when it comes to China. Yeah. I think just because New Zealand doesn't have an identical worldview, it doesn't mean it's going to take a backward step on its core values and its For commitment. Now. And I think yeah. the you know potential change of leadership in the United States um, got to help us if Trump gets in, although he's clearly ahead in the Republican primaries stakes. But, you know, if we have a change of government on October the 14th, we're down now to 92 days away from the election. Yeah. We really have to question whether that toughness will remain, um, given, you know, we could have a Jerry Brownlee as a foreign minister, and uh, the national um, line on China has been much less forthright, at least in opposition. And we'll have to see, maybe maybe MFAT and um, the GCSB and SIS have a quick chat to them the day after the election, and suddenly they become a lot tougher. But... Um, uh, that is one of the one of the risks here that uh, you know we have a we have a, a change in uh, approach, which is pretty unusual because normally the foreign affairs 
portfolio is sort of relatively bipartisan. Mm. We'll see how that that turns yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, I think I th- I'm not particularly keen on having Jerry Brownlee in there because if you haven't seen it, I will send it to you, Robert. Um, um, Newsrooms, uh, Tim Murphy wrote a very good piece today about this Chinese uh, ambassador's comments. And Nanaima Huta came out in a way that I haven't really seen her do before with a really super clear set of statements expressing really quite great concern about what the Chinese ambassador had said. So I don't know. I think there's, you know, like 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 we've discussed before, Bernard, usually not on the podcast, but maybe there's an act Labour coalition to come here. Ooh, exciting. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure that National would be as soft in China as they currently appear in opposition mm. once in government. We're all tigers out of office. Um, <laughs> we've seen a lot of politicians unsay everything they said in opposition. Yeah, or, or and, we're all tigers in our home offices. That's yeah, right. Exactly. But uh, yeah, I, I'll be surprised if National, you know, becomes slavishly pro China when the United States is tougher than New Zealand on China. Mm, mm. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it'll be an interesting mix. But I fully take Bernard's point. Uh, I think there is a degree of urgency in NATO because most NATO members realise with an election looming in the United States 15 months away, let's try and get Ukraine over mm. the line. Let, let's try and get them the ejection of Russian troops, get Putin out of the way before exactly. Trump or DeSantis or someone else appears on the scene in the White House. But, yeah, but um, at least we'll have a podcast to talk about it then too, Robert. Yeah, yeah. And one of the um, uh, interesting things about that is that Joe Biden said when asked how long this will last, and he said it won't last years. Well, that's, no doubt that's Nor one Joe, of the reasons. I think, I'm no. afraid. But anyway, that's another <laughs> yeah. subject for next week, perhaps. Yeah, Robert, thank you so much for coming on, on a public holiday, no doubt. So I really appreciate that. Thank no, you. it's a pleasure. Yeah, we we thank never you. thought academics actually worked that hard, so it's very oh, good of you to come. Thank you. Appearances can be deceiving. <laughs> Thanks, Robert. Thank you. Speaking of academics, um, can I introduce Corinne Podger, who we, we talked last week and there was real feedback, um, Corinne, real women, real feedback. There's always real feedback to Bernard because everybody loves them. But there was real feedback about Bernard's discussion or commitment we had last week to talk about solutions journalism because we were talking about the horse race. Uh, I think you were in the green room just now when we were talking about a, a really large piece that Bernard wrote this week, putting Labour's decision this week about housing or about a wealth tax, because New Zealand is the only place in the OECD that doesn't have either capital gains tax or a, a, a wealth tax of any kind. And what Bernard, I think, is trying to do without, and he'll tell you this now, but is is to get to this point of um, going beyond who's up, who's down in the polls, who eats sausage rolls, who's a bald-headed git that nobody knows, uh, and actually think about what the policy consequences are of some of these, these decisions. And I regard you, Corinne, from the Walkley Foundation in Australia as one of the experts in what we call solutions journalism. Would you like to, Bernard, would you like to say what you were, just before we bring Corinne yeah. in, would, just explain what we were, you were trying to do, because you're the, you're the main man, as Th- it were. Thank you. Um, I'm really uh, grateful, Corinne, that you've come on the show, because as Peter said last time, we we talked and sort of talked aloud about how it's time now um, to move on and do a lot more about the solutions. We have a particular problem in New Zealand, I think, where we're quite small and that means often people are conflicted and often 
uh, the sort of think tanks that you would have in a bigger country where a lot of ideas emerge in a safe way that politicians can then take and use, where solutions are discussed in public. We don't have that here because there is no left-leaning uh, think tank. The right-leaning think tank, the New Zealand Initiative, um, is still promoting um, policies that have been around for a long time. And so one of the things that I committed to in um, this big article this week, which has um, been one of the more successful we've had, is that rather than bang on about the problems all the time, which I'm quite good at doing, <laughs> um, or worrying too much about who won and who lost and you know the burps and the farts of any sort of election campaign, to actually focus on coming up with solutions that may not be emerging from the political environment, but have come from overseas or from people in NGOs and the likes and try and bring those up. And that's why I'm so glad you've come on, because I'm curious about how others are doing solutions journalism and why it's sort of it's sort of growing up, um, bubbling up from from beneath around the world. And maybe Corinne, you you explain who you are and, and what what give us a, a short line on what's what uh, solutions journalism is. Sure. Um, Both capital S and capital J, but also lowercase s and lowercase J. Sure. Okay. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I work with the Walkley Foundation in Australia uh, as the Senior Manager for Programs and Education. Um, about a year and a half ago, I also did a trainer accreditation with the Solutions Journalism Network. So I'm an accredited trainer at the moment. I think I'm the only one in Australia, um, but hopefully there will be more. We, we think of it as Australasia, but yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, well, there are there are solutions journalism trainers um, in wider um, Australasia, so in South Asia, um, in the Pacific as well. So, so what mm. is it? Um, it's an approach to journalism that sits alongside and complements news journalism, right? So, I think we need to understand what's going wrong. People want to know if there's you know, corruption happening, whether it's in their local community or at their in their national community. They want to know if their taxes are being spent or misspent. Um, they want to know if their local road is a traffic black spot, etc. Like we want to know the bad stuff. However, um, if if that's all you ever get from your news outlets, it is disempowering. Mm. Um, it contributes to you know, well-studied phenomena that are outside of solutions journalism research, but, you know, the Reuters Digital News Report talks mm. about bad news fatigue, audience alienation, um, you know, just a feeling of disempowerment and people switching off. And, in fact, the younger you are, the less likely you are to um, engage with the news. And, I I mean, I this is just my personal opinion. I think that young people... Um, you know, they're, they're still young. If you are a young person, you still, I think, um, live in the, in the milieu of hope, you know, mm -hmm. that you're raised to feel like the, the world is a good place. That's and exactly where Bernard and I are based, yeah. Yeah, mm. you know, you sort of, no. you, 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 your school and hopefully your parents and your family will try to give you a sense of the world as a good place. And then as you get older, you think, oh, my God, it's actually a bit rubbish really, isn't it? Um, and so as a young person, if all you're consuming is bad news, it doesn't speak to where you're at as a person in your life journey, right? So Solutions Journalism um, with capital S, capital J, 
the Solutions Journalism Network was set up in 2013 um, in the US. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's older than you think. And it's very similar in my view. Um, I don't work for them. I just have done their accreditation program. It's quite similar in quite a lot of ways to a Danish uh, organisation called the Constructive Institute. Mm-hmm. So constructive approach. What is it? It's subjecting responses to problems um, to the same journalistic rigour and evidence-based news gathering that we normally bring to problem reporting. So what you're looking for in a solution story is instead of all the things that are going wrong, so here's our traffic black spot, is to say who is developing responses to fix traffic black spots. And a solution story has to meet four criteria. So it has to be evidence-based. It has to present data, um, ideally quantitative, but, you know, qualitative if you don't have any. It also Mm -hmm. has to outline the limitations of a response. So sticking with the traffic black spot example, a a response to um, fixing this problem that comes from, say, Norway um, might not transpose very easily to Pakistan, right? So you have to explain mm-hmm. how, how it works and why. And then the fourth thing that a, a solution story has to um, meet as a criteria um, is that it has to offer insight. And what that means is enough information throughout the how it works, what is it, what are its, uh, what's the evidence for it and what are its limitations, that a person who's consuming that content could go away and think, you know, I could try something like that here, mm-hmm. right? So that's the what. And does it how, how does it does it help with trust? Is is there any evidence that it helps people um, develop trust in the journalism? Because I, again, I was thinking with Bernard's piece this week, which was both angry but also did offer solutions, or in the sense that it did offer an analysis of what the policy consequences were. D- does does this approach? increase proven is it proven to increase trust in journalism it is and in fact the uh this the network solutions journalism network has done quite a bit of um, independent research uh to look at things like Mm -hmm. audience engagement people tend to engage more with these stories um and that that means including things like website stickiness which we're all chasing in this day and age and people Mm -hmm. are over Mm -hmm clickbait, like, oh, here's this amazing headline, I will click on it, oh, disappointment. And it's, you know, of course You won't believe what she looked like when she was 12. Well, exactly. And of course that's alienating and it undermines trust, right? Like if we think about this as a personal relationship, Peter, if you constantly said, here's this amazing thing and I open the door and it's actually a bit average, after a while, not only do you disappoint me, I stop trusting you, right? Mm. So it's, it's not rocket science. But there's um, good research that's been done to look at uh, some of the impacts. One of the impacts is increased audience trust. Um, another is an increased willingness mm-hmm. to pay for journalism that is done through solution storytelling. Mm. Yes. And that, that's a good one because I think it's often difficult to get this sort of buy into yeah. this. What I found as a trainer is that um, journalists themselves um, are culture we're acculturated to thinking in terms of problems so even even when i've been training people to do solutions journalism they'll look for problems in the solutions journalism approach 
huge. Like it's there's a good story in there somewhere. And you're just like, oh, well, it bloody works in here, but it doesn't work here. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, do we have a control alt delete button for our industry? We really need one. Um, but yeah, so hopefully that's helping with some of the questions that you had. Can you tell us um, what sort of form this solutions journalism has taken, and where the examples of excellence are? So that I, I mean, often we learn through copying or, or or watching, and I'm and I'm curious to know, you know, who who are the stars, and and where is the, you know, where are the prize winning examples? Well, I do. I, I I want to reiterate that I don't have a formal connection with the Solutions Journalism Network. I don't, you know, I'm not endorsing them as a, you know, other solutions <laughs> approaches may exist. Um, they do mm. have a story tracker. So if you yeah, so if you Google Solutions Journalism Story Tracker, it will bring you to a section of their website where people who've done solution stories can submit a story for consideration and upload, um, which is great. So there's a growing body of work across a very wide range of topics, and you can filter for search functions like climate change or gender equity or um, you know reoffending is another one. So prison systems. So that answers your question, Bernard. And Peter, to your question, it's an interesting one because it's a, to do the four pillars, um, if one wants to refer to them in, the, in those terms, um, one would think that it would require long-form journalism. And I think a lot of solution stories are long-form, so feature stories, podcasts, et cetera. Mm -hmm. However, it's also possible if you're thinking about it to do this in, uh, you know, two and a half minute news package. Um, yeah. You could do it as a series of social posts. So you might not be able to do this in a single Instagram post, but might, you might do it as a series or you use your caption. You know, we get whatever it is, 2,000 characters in an Instagram post these days to do something there. So you have to yeah. be creative. Yeah, Corinne, I was wondering, it, 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 it's almost, it, see, I, I'm actually slightly, sus not suspicious, I'm slightly sceptical of Solutions Journalism Network as a kind of entity, as opposed to the idea of it being something that you can use as a as as a journalist, or you know, even in Bernard and my that we we often end our our podcast with a skateboarding dog, which is partly because we're practically slashing our own wrists by the end of the end of the thing. But you know, you could ask you can ask those four questions with any piece of content that you, any any story that you produce is essentially have i have i answered the question that people are asking or am i capable of answering it as well does it does it give you hope or does it make you feel miserable and are there answers in here that i'm not and i, I just wonder I, I, with the with the we've got another 90 days i think it is perhaps a little a little more of um, the new zealand election campaign how how could bernard hickey um, your your subject in this how could he shift political reporting to be more solutions oriented well i mean I, i'll uh i'll sort of skip over the skepticism around networks i mean i I, mm. I think everybody is you know when people develop a new concept or organization or movement within any sector um it's it's always an organic iterative process um what I, what i am heartened by um, I think is that it's a group of people who are doing their best, similarly to, you know, the membership puzzle, for example, which was a project that ran in Europe a few years ago and it was trying mm. to understand what drives the decision of people to become members of a media outlet, for instance. Is it perfect? Nothing's perfect. And, in fact, fun fact, um, you know, uh, 
I think one of the challenges that the Solutions Journalism Network has, has had is that it's called solutions, <laughs> when in mm -hmm. fact it's really about responses. And one of the iterative learnings um, has been that it's important really to look not just at things that responses that work, but also responses that don't work, right? We can work out how not to do something by looking at how someone else has done it badly, right? But to do so in a conscious way. So to come, but to come, to come to your question, Peter, I think, you know, we have in any election, there will be policies, right? Now, a policy is not a solution or a response. It is a theoretical response to something. So what you need to look at is places or contexts where that policy has been enacted and that's where you'll get your evidence-based, mm -hmm. you'll get your understanding of insights and limitations, and then you'll be able to say, would that work here? And that's that's actually a really interesting topic for a discussion, you know. So, so yeah. Bernard, what's a, what's a typical policy that you know, will be what? What would be two or three of the policies that will be at the centre of this election in your mind? Christ, don't open up housing. Here he goes. Here he goes. <laughs> so, so um, I'm really interested in this as a a framework to respond to a particular issue we have in New Zealand now, where the politicians rule out all sorts of solutions that have been put forward in the past to a problem, and essentially say, well. Uh, the various parts of this solution are uh, I'm so unpopular that I can't get re-elected and therefore I'm just going to park it. I'm not even going to talk about it. And I don't, I don't want you to talk about it either because I've ruled out doing a deal with you after the election. And so we end up with this um, hopelessness in a way. Young people look, and we have a particular issue in New Zealand, similar to Australia, although you have a capital gains tax and we don't, which means that a bunch of People and and I just said in this column yesterday, you know, if you're being really brutally honest and realistic about it, we're not going to solve this problem with the current sets of politicians, the current uh, political landscape, and the current solutions in front of us that are politically possible. And so, what I'm hoping that we can do um, in the next ninety days or so is lay out a set of options that may not have been put forward in the current political environment, um, simply because we don't have the think tanks, um, we don't actually connect to the debates that are being had overseas. And in these two particular areas of housing and climate, there is a real sense of um, dejection, of uh, hopelessness. And from a New Zealand-Australia point of view, Unlike Australia, where, you know, the young don't necessarily have an obvious alternative, you know, they can't leave the country so easily. They can't go to go to America or go to Britain. It's probably worse in both of those places. Whereas in New Zealand, because of the recent changes by Anthony Albanese and the sheer gap now in, in wages between Australia and New Zealand, uh, uh, New Zealanders, once you're a New Zealand resident, you can go just jump on a plane to Australia and get a job and buy a house and apply to be a citizen. And uh, unlike up until about six months ago, you got all of the benefits of being a rural Australian. So so uh, the reason I'm giving you the context here is that one of the problems we have actually is that we have very high migration of temporary workers coming in from all around the world, but we also have a huge amount of immigration 
New Zealand, young New Zealanders leaving New Zealand to go and live in Australia, and we're talking, you know, over a thousand a month at the moment. Um, partly because of, you know, huge demand for workers and we speak English and we've got mates who we can sleep on the couches while we get started and all of that. And the reason I'm putting this forward is that for a lot of people, a lot of our audience, they don't have a lot of hope. There is the, the obvious solutions are just being ruled out. And so I think there's an opportunity to start putting in place some, you know, options which maybe have not not been out there. And then interrogating them, you know, doing pros and cons, asking our readers, our subscribers. We have about 14,500 subscribers, including um, more than 2,000 who are paying subscribers, mm. asking them for help. And it's amazing the engagement we get in our uh, chat section and in our comment section. Only paying subscribers are allowed to comment. It's much more collegial and constructive than some of the, um, uh, frankly, shit fights you get in uh, comment sections and other news news uh, outlets. And there is an opportunity there for us to sort of step back from the, you know, who's going to win, what did the polls say, you know, all of the, the usual political dramas, um, you know, did this person shout at this other person and are they going to stay as a minister? Let others cover that because there's lots of other people doing that. And just focus, at least for the next 90 days, on the potential solutions for, in particular, our housing crisis, also our uh, emissions reduction crisis. Responses. And Call them responses. Yeah. Responses. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, Corinne, what would what would be your advice to Bernard on that? And, and I mean, let, less so me, because I, I just talk bollocks with Bernard once a week and do other things <laughs> in my own my own world. But what would your what would your advice be? You know, Doctor 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 Podger, please um, give Bernard the prescription and our readers the prescription or watchers the prescription in five minutes. Okay. Well, uh, prior to joining the foundation, I worked as a consultant for a few years. So I suppose with that, I'm I'm habituated to people saying, "Oh, I've got a thing. What do I do?" <laughs> so here are a few thoughts. The first is um, completely separate to what we've been talking about. Uh, your subscribers are the basis potentially of a think tank. Mm. So, mm. yeah, there you go. That's <laughs> <laughs> you know mm. you have a you have a coalition of the willing. It sounds like you know if they're switched on and interested, yeah. then there's the possibility to build momentum around that. It, all you need is structure. So that's um, that mm. would be my top level recommendation for you. Um, yeah, and we then, certainly we we lack we lack that in New Zealand, and um, we don't have the scale well, for. Maybe it. this time next year you won't. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's actually. Um, and in fact, uh, yeah, you wouldn't have to scale for it. Yeah, yeah, no, this is a real cat amongst our pigeons, and I, it's a good cat. <laughs> Thank you. Have you got a sofa we can all come over and stay on, though, Corinne? <laughs> <laughs> Quite a large sofa because Bernard's extremely tall. Okay, and then separate to that, I think some of the problems that you're describing, Bernard, are one is brain drain, right? That's really mm. what it is. It's people going, I mean, it's sort of yep. a combination of economic and brain drain, you know, decisions to, to move. Um, that puts New Zealand in the company of, you know, many countries, some of which you might not necessarily have thought about. Um, for example, sub-Saharan Africa um, has a lot of brain drain to United States, to Canada, um, India has a lot of brain drain in a different way, right? So you've got big countries, medium countries, small countries that shed young people who, um, you know, get an education and then head off, um, sometimes for a period of time, sometimes permanently, 
often when they go, they're planning to come home. Um, but, you know, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there are the, there's the opportunity to have a look at how other countries and cultures are managing the issue of brain drain, for mm. example. Some, some of the responses are more um, uh, legislative and, and controlling than others. Um, I, I think it's been explored in some places to place a limit on how long you can go away for or if you've, you know, had your education funded by the public purse, then you've got to mm. do a certain amount of time before you can head off. You know, how do you feel about that if you're 19? Probably not great. Um, so there's, but there's mm. lots of ways of having a look at those kinds of, of issues. So those are two thoughts. They're f- fascinating. And Corinne, thank you so much for My coming pleasure. on to the show. Thanks so um, much, yeah. You mentioned a couple of um, uh, phrases in there which resonated with me particularly around empowerment and engagement, but also the idea that uh, having some constructive, you know, ideas, responses, solutions, whatever you want to call them, completely changes the tone of the publication. And also, it's easier to get out of bed in the morning if you know you're going to work on something that might actually solve or deal or respond to the issue rather than simply get up every morning and saying, the world is ending. Yeah, yeah. I will just really quickly mention there was a project that was led in the US uh, by a woman called Molly de Aguiar, A-G-U-I-A-R, which was called The Listening Project, and it was a 12-month project to listen to the audience. So I think there's also that is... It's not just providing a sense of empowerment, engagement, and hope. It's also actually displaying an interest in listening. Thank you so much for doing that. Cheers, and guys. we're going to do our skateboarding dog now. But thank Enjoy. you so much. Bye. You're wonderful, and I really appreciate your time, Karen. Thank you. Pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. See you. The last time she and I saw each other, of course, we were eating uh, truffle pasta in Perugia. So you can you can imagine how, um, you know, the, the crisis in journalism still doesn't prevent you being in Italy eating uh, truffle truffle pasta I'm, for as I'm long as you can. I'm tempted to come along to that one. That yeah, sounds well, I think like you a, should. Well, next year you're going to yeah, have yeah. how I created New Zealand's largest media organisation out of um, out of my out of out of my bedroom. Uh, and we can replay this particular section of the podcast as you know. This was the this was the moment. Yeah. So my my skateboarding dog Bernard is a, is a bit of a dark one. And it's the death this week, or the shooting this week, of a Russian general, Stanislav Ritsky, who was killed in the Russian city of Krasnodar, uh, apparently because his assassin tracked him on the Strava um, oh, no. fitness app, which <laughs> you might remember a few years ago, there was a fantastic story about how um, American soldiers in places like Diego Garcia and Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan were keeping their um, uh, Stravas on, and it showed exactly the shape and size of the bases that they were working on and where the runways were and everything because they were running around them. And, and of course, in this case, um, the poor chap has been nailed by some um, partisan, it would appear. He always runs past here at 10 past 8 every morning, you know, just just go behind that grassy knoll. Well, I saw you the other day running, Bernard, and you you looked like a god. You, you, you know, you, you could have just that trip to Athens has, has done all the all the you know turned you into an Olympic athlete. Uh, yeah, that's a bit that's a bit strong. I've got a few lumps and bumps, uh, but I'm really enjoying my running. Uh, I'm, I had a full head hooked, of teeth, full face of teeth though now, which is good. much much better. Yeah, for those of you who might have listened in during the last month or so, you might have wondered about my newly acquired lisp. Well, that was because I lost a front tooth. 
Uh, but it's back in now, so that's uh, that's yeah, great. in a punch up in a in a in an Uzo bar in um, Athens, right? Not quite. I sneezed and it went down yeah. onto the ground. <laughs> All right, let's not go there. Bernard, really good to talk to you today, and and thanks everybody for t- for taking part on a on a public holiday on Matariki. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much, and thank you to Simon Josie, our producer, who's doing a wonderful job um, in Germany, uh, patching us all together tomorrow. So everyone, have a great long weekend. Kakite no. Kakite ano. This has been the home. I've never said that before. I don't think. Yeah, I've just said it for Chris Luxon. See you. Bye. <laughs> Kakite. Bye bye.